Good morning. <laughs> Much better, huh? Good to see you this morning. I don't want to shock you, but new glasses. So I want to give you a second just to get used to it because it's a little different. Someone said that's the Harry Potter look. Who's that? This morning we continue looking at the parables of Jesus, simple stories, daring truths. We're in Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14 this morning. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18, a simple story. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I was thinking it would be neat to hang out with my buddy Jesus. That is, until Jesus tells this story. In fact, I imagined, and I've done this, perhaps you have too, thought, what would it be like to be in the company of Jesus, to, to travel with him, to kind of squeeze in on the circle of people around him and listen to his teaching, to hear these stories. That's what I imagined then. And I imagine him telling a story like this to Pharisees, religious leaders. But then I thought this week, what if, uh, and this is a very real thing, uh, Jesus walked with me throughout my day from morning to evening, laid down beside me at night got up with me in the morning. And throughout the day, as I went through the different uh, parts and pieces of my everyday life, uh, Jesus just stopped me for a moment at certain intersections of my experience and said, John, let me tell you a story. And that story would have to do with, you know, it's a, it's a simple story. It's, it's plain on the surface of it, but yet it, it really carries a pungent, 
piercing, daring truth about my life. It shows me about who I am. More importantly, it shows me about who God is and who I am in the light of who God is and then how I should see not only God and myself, but how I should see others. I got to thinking I'd hear a lot of stories each and every day. Perhaps you would too. You'll notice in verse 9, Jesus tells this story to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This idea of trusted in themselves really is they're convinced. They don't even give it a second thought. There's no doubt. There's no reservation. There's no second thoughts. They're, they're just convinced that they're righteous. And then we're told that as a result, they looked down on others, or they looked on others with contempt. Contempt is that idea of disdain, dissatisfaction, perhaps even a humph, or a little bit of being upset. Kind of like when you smell something bad and it causes you to turn your nose up or turn away or express some irritation or even some anger because you see the ramifications of this behavior. You see what it's doing to others. You see what it's doing to their children or doing to themselves or doing to our country or doing to the sport or doing, doing, doing. And that's really a key right there because it's that attitude, that, that thing I see in myself when I look down on others or look on others with contempt that Jesus says is a red flag, a flashing red light, a warning, John. You're self-righteous. You've convinced yourself. You, you know what it's right. And now you're looking down on others in your confidence, your certainty, your self-righteousness. And I wondered, where do we get that sense of certainty, of being right? You know, right about sports. When we uh, talk to the television, and we instruct the quarterback, or the coach, or the captain of the team, or we yell out to that player. Or that sense of fashion when we turn to our spouse or to a friend. And maybe we're watching television or we're watching somebody in the mall and we have a comment about the way they're dressed. And it's disparaging. It's a major put-down. It's an expression of disgust. Because we know better. Because we're certain of what's right. 
and what's best. I got to admit, Shelley and I, when we lived over in the Bay Area, we used to vacation in the Santa Cruz area. I enjoyed going to the boardwalk, not for the rides. I just like sitting on a bench and watching people go by. And I would elbow Shelly and I'd say, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to set up a booth. And on that booth, it would have a sign and it would say, fashion tips, 25 cents. Let me change your life. (laughs) I mean, there really was a, anyway, (laughs) let me change your life. This is a story about a good man and a bad man. It's about the story, not just about a good man and a bad man. It's a story about two images of God, two views of God. The view of the Pharisee and the view of the tax collector. The Pharisee knows he pleases God and he credits God. And he gives thanks to God. The tax collector knows he displeases God. And he begs for mercy. The shocker is, the shocker is, is that, and if you go back in time and and you position yourself in the crowd and you're listening to Jesus, you think, What authority? Because Jesus reveals the judgment of God. He reveals the mind of God. He has the gumption. He has the sense of self-authority to tell us what God's heart is on this matter. And to our shock and surprise, he tells us that the good man is not vindicated and the bad man is, which points our attention to the condition, not of their deeds, but of their heart. The attitudes of the two men tell us how they see God. The Pharisees is false, we're told by Jesus. His view of God was presumed. The tax collector, his view of God was hoped for and not presumed. And we're told his is right. It's interesting that the verdict of Jesus stands actually outside the parable, outside the simple story. And it's a part of the daring truth. The verdict is that the tax collector does not even know the outcome of the prayer. There's no basis in him or for him to congratulate himself. And you're left with this realization that before God, we have no claim, no standing, 
No ability to congratulate ourselves at all. Jesus, and this is before the cross, but Jesus gives us even now a picture, a foreshadowing of the cross, which demonstrates the love of God, demonstrates the grace of God, that that his love is not in any way conditioned by our goodness, by our fashion, by our abilities. All the things that we would stand on by which we would then look down on others. That's no standing before God. And the cross teaches us that. We must not leave the cross behind. I've been reading a lot of Flannery O'Connor. She, uh, in her short story, she has one titled, The Temple of the Holy Ghost. I'm not going to tell you the story. But there's a point in which a young girl is hugged by a nun, and the nun has a cross hanging from her waist. And as she hugs this young child to her, the cross is pressed into her cheek. And it leaves an indelible impression on her cheek that she carries around for many hours. I want that to be upon our hearts. That indelible impression of the cross. What this parable reminds us of is that looking up to God for salvation should hinder us from ever looking down on others. And we're going to look at what the Pharisee's error is, what we learn from the tax collector's prayer, and what counts as righteousness before God. This parable turns our human appraisals upside down. And they're turned upside down by a clearer vision of God. The cross, of course, for us, will always be that cross-shaped keyhole by which we view God and His love for us. That realization that He had to go to the cross because... There was nothing redeemable in us except our hearts, our very persons. You know, it's not the things we do that could be salvaged. He loves us and he dies for us to win us to his love through his grace. What was the Pharisee's error? He lost sight of that great love. The Pharisee is a good man. I know that when we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately think of somebody who is uh, maybe even despicable or somebody that's wrong-headed. I mean, we we just immediately have a a skewed perspective of the Pharisees. But that, we've we've got to, to somehow temper or, or get rid of that a bit. In that day, the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were the ones who were really serious about God. They were the ones really trying to live 
for God. They were the evangelicals of the day. They were motivated. And that's why they put such an emphasis on seeking to obey and do the things of God. These two, the tax collector and the Pharisee, are polar opposites. They are extremes. He's the best, and the tax collector's the worst. Tax collectors were considered betrayers of the country. They were like bad politicians. They were the kind of people that took advantage of you, that profited off of you, off of the weak. The Pharisee, he was in your court. He was trying to help you live for God. This Pharisee would be a leader in any church, and in a way, is, if we understand this parable. If he were a candidate for election, we would all campaign for him. If this Pharisee was dating your sister, you'd be glad to have him as a brother-in-law in your family. The last thing that we would fully appreciate is that his heart is wrong. That's something that Jesus brings out in this parable. When we're judgmental, when we're satisfied with ourselves, when we're self-righteous before God, something's wrong with our hearts. We're not seeing God clearly. The problem sometimes is that we would see this man, or if we were talking about a woman, or even a child, because sometimes we see this in our children, or sometimes in our grandchildren. And as precious as we are, we hate to see these things creeping in. It's that conceit. And sometimes we think, just a little bit of behavior adjustment. You know, if we could just ask them to tone it down. You know, give them some tips as to how to manage that. And that's just doing more of what the Pharisee's already doing, is learning how to do the right things with the wrong heart. Jesus is trying to get at the heart of the issue. And by going to the opposite, the tax collector, he shows us where that heart begins. This Pharisee is in the temple. He stands in the presence of God. He looks at God the way, thinking that God is, looks at him the way people look at one another, as if the distinctions that matter to us matter to the Almighty. As Haddon Robinson put it, he had a good eye on himself, a bad eye on his neighbor, and no eye on God. He thought he could please God by keeping the laws. And hearers would think so too. In fact, when Jesus says at the end of the parable, after the parable's over, and he gives us his comments at the end, he says, This one went down justified. 
At first, you don't know who it is until you talk about he who humbled himself, God exalts. But he who glorifies or elevates, he humbles. We would too, thinking that doing the commandments is how we please God, unless we were keyed into the heart of Jesus' ministry, and that's the love commandment. Let me just say a quick word about that. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the Hebrew, love God with your heart, your soul, and your whole being, everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. Which tells us that it's all about God. If it's all about God, and it was for this Pharisee, he missed the point about loving others as himself. And here's what I want us to just think about for a moment. If it's all about God, it's all about others. That's the point of Jesus putting these two commands together and saying, in effect, that to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you've got to love others. Because, and I hope you're kidding this, I'm not very eloquent at this point, we are to love others as ourselves, and I think that's a key that God loves you loves me, loves all, as he loves himself. He is love. I mean, when you think about it that way, that God loves because it's his nature to love. He loves you as he loves himself. Therefore, if we're to love God, if we're to really grasp what it means to love God, it's not just about pleasing and doing things for him if we miss that other part, that we are to love as he loves and to love others as ourselves. That is really tapping in to the very heart of God when we love others as we love ourselves. I know we immediately think, well, I don't love myself very much. This is not about the quality or even the amount of love you have for yourself. This is the standard, the guideline that helps us because we all know how we want to be treated. This is the basis of the law. This is why Jesus and all of the writers of the New Testament in one way or other can emphasize that if we fulfill the love commandment, God and uh, loving others, we fulfill the whole law. Because the fundamental basis of law is that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. That is at the heart of love others as you would love yourself. Love as you love yourself. I know how I want to be loved. I know how I want to be treated. We all have a basic standard of what goodness is, what kindness is, what courtesy is. We know how we want to be treated. Jesus says, in effect, God says, in effect, if in doubt, love others that way. What do we learn from the tax collector's prayer? The tax collector was a very bad man. He was like, as I said, our corrupt politician or a traitor to our country because he 
He worked with the Romans, the occupying powers. In the temple, this tax collector stood in the presence of God, and in the presence of God, he kept beating his breath. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We think immediately he had plenty to ask forgiveness of. But I think what Jesus wants us to understand is that if we're like this man, we see God clearly. If we think that we're better than this man, then we don't see God clearly. And we're more like that Pharisee who went down unacquitted, his prayer unaccepted. One of the benefits of living in the presence of God is this, is that when you really see God, you see yourself. And when you see yourself, you see your sin. And when you see your sin, you cry out to God for forgiveness and grace. And it's then that you receive it. The saint is always more aware of that. Have you noticed that if you're walking with the Lord... We're always more aware of our need for God than our successes in God. Always more aware of how far we have to go than how far we have come. I guess that's why sometimes people tell me, you know, we appreciate your transparency. Well, that just seems to me honesty. That's the way I always see. I've got room to, to grow and to change. The other day... Um, I was, we had, the kids were just, we had that, monkeys, little monkeys crawling all over the place. And I came home, and I was, I was tired. I deserved a break. And I sat in the backyard, and the, you know, the monkeys I'm talking about were the grandchildren. And I was trying to read. And I couldn't concentrate. And it was getting to me. It was, it was starting to irritate me. And I could see Shelley. Somehow she was picking it up. <laughs> and, and, and she was sympathetic. And she said, she said I'm sorry, hon. Yeah. And you know what I was thinking inside? I was thinking, God, I'm so Because the love commandment, the love commandment was just right there. John, this is an opportunity for you to love these little grandchildren, to spend time with them. Sure, nobody else would fault you. Everybody would see the justifications. Everybody would, would be just as righteous as you are. But John, love, what would I do? I would see this grand opportunity, this holy moment, this chance, you know, to do something for others, for your little ones. They're going to grow up. You know how it goes. And I didn't want to do it. But Jesus is so compelling. His commandment is so compelling because his love is so compelling. I thrive on it. I respond to it. I live in it. I breathe in it. And you do too. You know what I'm talking about. And I put my bookmark in the book, and I put it down, and I started smiling, and I said, come on, I'll give you a ride on my back. And I got in the pool with the little grandkids, and they were 
climbing all over me, and we had a great time. And you know, it, it was a joy, and I have that memory. I wouldn't have had a memory. My comprehension isn't that good anyway. It seems like I forget what I read is about as soon as I read it. The love commandment. I'm so grateful I have it. I'm so grateful we have it. Yeah, sometimes it pinches me. Sometimes it squeezes me. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm so grateful we have this command because it constantly reminds me that that is the God that we have. And when I look up to him and I see him in the light of that commandment, I cannot look down on others. I cannot judge them because it is that love which vindicates me. That love which made provision for my shortcomings through offering up his son on the cross. It is that love which comforts me, which stirs me, which challenges me, which encourages me, which shows me how to live in each and every situation in a way that is constructive, joyful, meaningful, fruitful, beautiful, Christ-like. Both these men were in the temple, but it was the tax collector who saw God clearly. Job is described as the most righteous man in his day. When he suffered, his friends told him he was suffering severely because he'd sinned badly. Job denied that. He refused to accept that. And then at the end of the book, Job receives a vision of God. And when he sees the vision, Job responds, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Seeing God, he saw himself. Seeing himself, he saw his sin. Seeing his sin, he saw his need of grace and forgiveness, and he cried out to God for cleansing. Isaiah. Isaiah was the cream of young manhood in his day. But in the hour of national and personal crisis, when a mighty king had died, Isaiah stood in the temple and caught a vision of God, high and lifted up his train, filling the temple. And when Isaiah caught that vision of God, he said, Whoa is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And when Isaiah saw God, he saw himself. And when he saw himself, he saw his sin. And when he saw his sin, he saw his need of forgiveness and grace. And he cried out to God for cleansing. Paul, when he wrote his first letter to a very young, impressionable friend named Timothy, he says, here is a trustworthy saying, Timothy, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the worst. Did you catch? Did you notice the verb? It was not, I was the worst back there on the Damascus Road when I was persecuting the church. But I am the worst of sinners. Now, having preached the gospel around the empire, now that I've established churches in the major cities, now that I've suffered persecution for God, I am the worst of sinners. That's profound. And why did he talk about himself that way? Because a verse later he says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. I think about our posture when we come into church on Sundays, our attitude, the way we sing songs or don't sing songs. I think if we saw God we would see ourselves. And if we saw ourselves, we would see our sin. And if we saw our sin, we'd cry out to God for grace and forgiveness. And there we would find vindication because he's the God of the cross, the God of Jesus Christ. He's the God of love. And in taking that to heart, personalizing it deeply, we would realize that looking up to God for salvation should never allow us to look down on others. Will you stand with me? One of the beautiful things about this parable is to, and I hope I just started the process to see God with respect to who we are. One of the things I just want to leave you an encouragement that when we're most broken, we haven't lost God. We've gained all of God. It's uh, been said that Christ plus nothing is everything. It's hard to know brokenness because usually it's a painful experience. It means subtraction and not addition. Our way of thinking. But this parable reminds us
This man who had nothing before God, actually, Jesus said, had everything. Will you pray with me? After we pray, if you'd like to come and pray with me, with the elders, their wives, pastoral staff, about yourself, about someone else, we invite you to come. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. We're humbled. Profoundly moved to think more broadly this morning and with great gratitude for your grace. Let it uh, inform our hearts, condition our hearts, change our hearts in practical ways this day and this week. May your spirit move in our, in our days and in our hearts and whisper simple stories bearing daring truths because you love us and you want us to enjoy all of the riches of the gospel, of your love for us, of a relationship with you. And it is with thanksgiving and praise that we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.